Many of us spend our whole life in search of purpose, desperately seeking meaningful ways to make a difference in the world with the short amount of time we are given. Deploying High has been designed to help you analyze what gives you purpose through inspirational, thought-provoking stories and conversation. I'm Nora Firestone, author of the book Deploying High about the mission and true purpose of our host. So it is a true pleasure and honor to introduce to you Chief Gene Saunders. Welcome, everyone. You are listening and watching Deploying High. I'm your host, Chief Gene Saunders, founder and CEO of Project Lifesaver International. Today, I'd like to welcome our guest, who I think, as far as I'm concerned, is absolutely a special guest. I had occasion to talk to him this past November at the UDT SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce. And during that conversation, and actually visiting their store, I had learned that he had written a book. And the book is entitled, By Water Beneath the Walls, The Rise of the Navy Seals. I have read the book. Uh, It is probably one of the most complete works on where the seals came from, how they evolved. And it not only talks about the seals, but it also talks about other special operations groups, their involvement, and how they all kind of interlocked or interacted, which I think it brings a whole new concept to the history of special operations and to the SEALs. So I'd like to welcome my special guest for the day, SEAL Ben Milligan. Ben, how are you? I'm good, Gene. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm glad to see you. Glad to talk to you. Uh, how have things been since November? Uh, busy. Uh, <laughs> like the rest of the world, we've been dealing with uh, uh, all the uh, recurring uh, COVID sicknesses. All my uh, kids keep getting it. and. Uh, we quarantined the the rest of them. And I think now uh, we we've all had it. So, <laughs> wow. Fortunately, well, hopefully, we're we're getting through this. Well, I opted for the vaccination, but you know now that it's uh, that's not even a a, a constant to uh, keep you from getting it. You know, I'll just wonder when my turn will be. <laughs> we'll just you're, truck on and see what happens. You're in Florida too. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I am. I am. So, well, listen, you know, you were in the SEALs, uh, a SEAL. Uh, when did you join the SEALs, Ben? Uh, I joined in, uh, I I graduated buds in August of, uh, 2001. So a month before nine 11. Wow. What timing timing. So here's a good question for you. And uh, I like to talk to to the other SEALs and ask them this question. Why the SEALs? Uh, You know, back then, even uh, um, uh, the SEAL teams have a cachet to them that, uh, um, you know, they've gotten more and more since, uh, you know, since the the war on terror has been in full swing. Um, Yeah. But even before that, I, I, I mean, I, growing up as a young man, I, I, I knew that the SEAL teams were the, uh, the one commando force that went everywhere, that did everything, um, and I wanted to have, a, have an experience like that. So um, I considered uh, the other branches of service. Um, I, I mostly considered them because I really didn't like the water. <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to spend so much time in it. Uh, I think a lot of, a lot of guys that... Uh, 
uh, ultimately choose that path. I have a similar story, though. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, that I graduated buds with recently, and he um, uh, he was describing a situation where somebody accidentally splashed water on him after buds, and he gave them uh, <laughs> uh, he gave them a lot of side eye. <laughs> it's, uh, the the idea of being wet and cold uh, at all after buds is about the worst thing you can think of. So, well, I can well imagine. And uh, although we didn't get to talk in detail, I have, you probably have picked up on the fact that yeah, I have a lot of interest in the seals and seal teams. Uh, my background, just to give you a little insight, uh, was I was in the army. Uh, I was with the hundred first airborne division long before it became a rope club. Uh, which is what we refer to it now. Uh, I have been through Ranger school and Marine recon school, but I did that as a SWAT team member. Uh, And then fortunately we were able to uh, connect with UDT 21 back in 74, 75. So I spent a lot of time with UDT 21. Hmm. Then uh, went to to recon school in 83, met a couple of guys, uh, Hank Wall and Pierre Ponson from, uh, from team two, uh, as a result of that, uh, I was able to link the SWAT team and seal team two together. So, uh, I spent a lot of time with seal team two from about 84 to about 87. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the great cra- uh, fast rope crash back mm-hmm. in Oceana, uh, it was, we were working with SEAL Team 2. In fact, Rudy Bosch was with us on the Hilo. Anyway, six of us and six of the guys from Team 2 had a, uh, uh, a fast rope incident at Oceana Naval Air Station. And uh, as if it, we proved that, yeah, fast roping is dangerous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I ended up with a broken back, other assorted injuries with the guys. And then in 1990, uh, met some guys and had a very close working relationship with a dev group up until about 97. So you can see where my interest lies. Sure. Uh, I was an army guy, but I'm kind of like you. I, I, uh, the seals have a whole different way of doing things in my viewpoint, uh, which I, uh, took to very well. And they were a lot easier to work with. Uh, I found as far as, is getting with them and, and interacting. So anyway, enough of my story. Uh, why the book, Ben? This is probably one of the most comprehensive works, but it's not just about the seals, oh, which I, I liked. Oh, I, I appreciate it. I, I describe it in uh, two ways. I, one, I don't say it's a, com- I never say it's a comprehensive history of the SEAL teams. One, because I didn't want to write a comprehensive history of the SEAL teams. I was more interested in um, really just answering the question that I set out at the beginning of the book, which is, you know, how did the Navy, uh, as I you know say, it's the least likely branch of service, come to create the country's first permanent land-focused commando unit? Uh, I think it's a question that um, everyone who ever becomes a SEAL is sort of self-conscious about, you know, because we are. Uh, sent all over the world. We do things. Uh, we, 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 we conduct uh, raids. We uh, were, you know, uh, deployed to mountaintops in Afghanistan. Um, uh, and I, I started to work on the book uh, right in 2011. And in 2011, you had two, you know, major events, which one was the 
killing of Osama bin Laden by Navy SEALs, which was, you know, the arch villain in the war on terror. And two, the three months and four days later, uh, the crash of Extortion 17, which was uh, the largest loss of life for coalition forces in the entire uh, war in Afghanistan. And both of these events, not only did uh, were they uh, predominantly uh, uh, conducted or involving Navy SEALs, but both were uh, occurred more than 600 miles away from the closest salt water. So I thought that this was a um, this was a weird puzzle that nobody had ever really uh, tried to get to the bottom of. Um, so I, you know, I, I set out to do it. What I didn't, uh, you know, fully anticipate was how it would, like you say, you know, take me into all of these other, uh, you know, trying to understand all these other units. And um, the reason it did is because, as I, you know, found uh, the SEAL story would never have happened had it not been for the uh, the experiences of these other units. Uh, one, because, you know, they tried all the things the SEALs did, but two, because their parent services um, got, for, for one reason or another, oftentimes it was, you know, uh, perhaps a bit of con conventional thinking, but also just because they had different priorities. They would uh, shut these units down uh, and create this huge gap uh, for another branch of service or another agency to fill. And sometimes it was uh, the Marine Corps that filled it. Sometimes it was the Army that filled it. Sometimes it was the CIA. But invariably, uh, throughout this 30-year uh, arc of history, the Navy uh, continually pushes uh, toward that gap, even when they start running out of water on which to sail to it. So when I describe the book to people, I don't always describe it like that because it's a bit of a long answer, but I'd like to say it's a bit of a biography instead of uh, a biography of a character, though it's a biography of an institution. So, uh, you know, if you ever read uh, Hamilton or, uh, you know, a biography of Washington, any great biography uh, just takes that character and uses them as sort of the central character and as an excuse to talk about all the people that were in their orbit. So for me, yes, the book is about uh, the SEAL teams and how the SEAL teams become what they are, which is you know, the, the, the institution that I served in, which is a, a go anywhere, capture, kill commando force. Uh, but it's really just a great excuse uh, to, to learn about all these other units and how they all contributed uh, to this institution. Sorry, that was a mouthful. <laughs> no, but that's good. That's good. You know, and there is a lot of interest in the SEALs and there has been uh, for the, you know, the, the past few years. And a lot of people, just like uh, you mentioned in your book one time, they, well, the SEALs, you know, how do they do this? And they're so far from the water. Well, they got water in the canteens, so that's that's close enough. Uh, well, that, that's I've heard they, that phrase a lot. So. Yep, that's what they would say. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But you know, in in learning how the seals evolved, and and uh, because a lot of this, I was not aware of, and I think our listeners are not aware of it. Because what do we know about the seals? Okay, we know that they are a Supposedly amphibian commando unit, but that's not where it ends. Uh, they're very got a lot of books out about the seals, a lot of books out about you know uh, the the things that they've done, the accomplishments that they've had, and of course a lot is said about the training, you know. But so uh, you know since that is one of the the highlights that people keep asking about and wanting to know about. What was your impression of Buds? Um, Buds is, uh, you know, uh, 
I think uh, whether or not you want to be a SEAL, I think a lot of uh, people want to know about BUDS, like you say, because it is billed as the, uh, the toughest selection course in the U.S. military. I was a bit uh, suspicious of that uh, claim um, until I wrote the book. When uh, I, I'd never served in the Army, I'd never served in the Marine Corps, and I know that these institutions uh, have put together uh, very impressive uh, selection courses uh, for themselves. Uh, what I didn't know was, uh, you know, how different Buds was from all these other things. Uh, ha- after writing the book and discovering all of these various selection courses and, and then follow on operator training courses, I realized Buds is the hardest thing that we have. And, but, but there's a reason that it's uh, as hard, it, hard as it is. One, it's conducted in a maritime environment because, as you say, SEALs have to be that go-anywhere maritime force. So uh, the, 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 it's, uh, the C is the, is the first letter in the acronym that, that makes SEAL. So without that, and the, the C is just a very, very uncomfortable environment to be in. So uh, that's one reason that it, it's uh, as tough as it is. The other reason that it's as tough is all connected to uh, the, the origins of where uh, Bud starts. And Bud starts um, in 1943 uh, when uh, the Allies are uh, trying to uh, figure out how to dismantle uh, this wall that, hit, that Hitler has erected uh, along uh, the beaches in France and Belgium. Uh, and, and the only way to do that is by creating a, uh, a force of engineers, uh, naval combat demolition engineers, that can go and dismantle these things. So the guy that they put in charge of uh, coming up with the training uh, curriculum to do this is a, you know, a bespectacled uh, sort of a nerd. He's not, you know, what you would ever consider uh, like a modern day SEAL or anything like that. He's, uh, um, he's slight. Uh, he's uh, got horrible uh, vision. Uh, he doesn't want to be a special operations commando or anything like that. His dream uh, prior to putting all this together is all he wanted to do was be a destroyer sailor, just like his old man. Uh, but because he had been denied service uh, in the U S Navy in the, in the years leading up to world war II, he had uh, uh, bounced around from service to service. Uh, he had uh, joined the French army to be an ambulance driver uh, in uh, the uh, early days of world war II. Uh, when he, after he is released from a prison camp uh, by the Germans, he goes to, uh, Great Britain. He uh, becomes a bomb disposal guy uh, during the Blitz, uh, and he, he spends nine months uh, in, in Great Britain dismantling uh, bombs where people are uh, getting killed all around him. So when he finally uh, comes back into the U.S. Navy and he's put in charge of this uh, naval commando unit, he's a guy who has seen more of World War II than any American alive. And he knows how difficult combat is, and he knows how uh, hardened these these men are going to have to be in order to uh, handle it, not just, uh, you know, the maritime aspect of it, you know, dismantling obstacles in a maritime environment, but also just being able to deal with just the misery of combat, going without food, going without sleep, being miserably cold. Uh, So he puts he puts this course together that, you know, he has a hard time getting through himself and then he puts himself through the course. That's, that's where it comes from. That's why it is what it is. And it's just been piled on ever since. And that gentleman was? That was Draper Kaufman. Yes. Sorry, I forgot to mention his name. That's all right. <laughs> I, I was going to say it. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. 
He's one of the weirdest guys in the book, that's for sure. But he's one yeah, of the he Well, you, there's some weird guys in your book, Ben. I mean, face it. Uh, and some of the titles that some of the units had, like the tuna fish, I mean, that was <laughs> that jumped right out. Um, yeah, I, and I, I recently got a, an email from somebody who uh, uh, just read the book. He, he uh, wanted to say he, he had no idea that the SEAL teams had been created by a bunch of Jewish jocks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you never know where something will come from. You know, how many things have been created sitting over a beer or, uh, (laughs) you know, over a dinner or, uh, you know, if you look back at history and some of the other interesting things was uh, a lot of people talk about, well, you know, Fort Pierce is is where it all started and so forth and so on. But but that's not entirely correct. Uh, And I had heard that in the past. It all started, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, in Little Creek, Virginia. Yeah, I mean, it depends where you start the story. But, yeah, there's, uh, it, yes, uh, the, the scouts and raiders get their, uh, they cut their teeth in Little Creek. Little Creek at, the, at that time is, is it's a, a backwater inlet, you know, just at the, uh, at the very lower uh, lip to the entrance of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, they, if you want to even go back further, they started on Solomon's Island, which is uh, a bit north yeah. of Maryland. Um, but yeah, but what's interesting about Fort Pierce is that all of these units eventually migrate down there and everybody, uh, all of the units, uh, that are created, whether they're, uh, Naval combat demolition units, uh, the, uh, army, Navy scouts and Raiders, uh, the, uh, uh, UDTs, uh, and, uh, the army Rangers, uh, they all, uh, they all have, they all spend time at Fort Pierce, uh, getting maritime training, um, so it, if uh, if there is a, a birthplace of all of these institutions, I, I suppose for um, you know Fort Pierce is as good as any. In fact, a uh, a very very good friend of mine. That's where he went through UDT training. You know, and, and another interesting thing I saw in the book, which I never knew about, and and I keep saying this because I think people that have an interest in special operations itself should read this book, not just in SEALs, but just in special operations, was the activities of the, uh, of the early SEALs, if you want to call them that, uh, in China, uh, with yeah. a fellow by the name of Miles. Yeah. I thought Miles. that was very interesting. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. So uh, the, the whole China segment was a, I knew about the, uh, I knew that before I had started writing this book, I, I, I had structured the book. And uh, when I got the uh, contract with the publisher, I had structured it into 10 chapters. And uh, 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 I, I wanted to stay as close to that outline as I possibly could. By the time I had finished uh, chapter five, which was my chapter on the UDTs, I, I knew that I wanted to leave World War II uh, and uh, go into the Korean War. Um, and I, I needed to start talking about all of the uh, um, all the Navy units, all the UDT units uh, that start moving inland uh, in the Korean Peninsula to do all of these things like uh, blowing rail bridges, uh, escorting uh, in, uh, indigenous agents ashore. Um, and I kept uh, I, I kept you know trying to like talk about this China. Uh, experience the Navy had had in World War II is almost like an introductory section to my Korea chapter. 
And I, so I kept, you know, trying to write it. I kept trying to like, you know, cram as much, uh, you know, information into this introductory section. And my introductory section kept growing and growing and growing. Before long, I was like, son of, I, I'm going to have to write a whole chapter on this thing. And it was going to totally uh, sabotage my timeline for finishing the book, but I knew I had to do it. So what I ended up doing is I spent the next year to 18 months just living uh, mentally in China, uh, learning everything I could about this, uh, multiple trips to the archive in, uh, in Maryland, uh, which has a completely untapped, uh, almost untapped, uh, um, I mean, box after box after box of information on this, uh, this one um, subject that very few people have actually tapped into to write a comprehensive history of this, of this experience, this, the, the Navy's experience in China. Um, so what that was, was uh, um, in the early days of World War II, um, Admiral King, uh, who is the chief of naval operations, he knows how important China could be uh, in dismantling or in, uh, in, in winning total victory against the Japanese. I'm not sure if China is important because they want to uh, establish a beachhead there and then ultimately uh, um, move troops uh, from, from China to Japan, or if it's just important because they need weather stations uh, set up in China so they can predict the weather uh, that's going to be uh, you know, blowing out of the Siberian uh, tundra all the way out into the Pacific. Uh, and without those weather stations, the ships were flying blind. So he dispatches this guy, Mary Miles, who's a destroyer skipper or a destroyer sailor who wants nothing more than to go to sea uh, in World War II and uh, uh, you know, fight you know, the way he's been training his entire career to fight. Uh, but he, he dispatches him to China to set up weather stations and uh, what he describes as to heckle the Japanese. A, a very, very broad, vague mandate. So Miles gets over there. And for whatever reason, Miles's personality is almost perfectly adapted uh, for diplomacy uh, and and making friends with the uh, the Chinese. And nobody at that point had really been able to do that. Uh, the OSS had had trouble. Uh, Donovan's personality wasn't uh, was like oil and water with the Chinese. So every uh, time uh, an American went over there to try and uh, establish some sort of relationship with the Chinese army, Stillwell, Donovan, whatever. They would have trouble, but Miles, he hits the ground in China, establishes great relationships, and before long, the Chinese ask him if he'd be interested in commanding uh, in, in commanding a Chinese guerrilla army. He's a sailor, but he accepts <laughs> without even asking permission. He accepts, and before long, he's commanding this this hundred thousand man uh, navy led uh, guerrilla army in China which uh, sort of creates a pipeline uh, for all of these uh, special units that the Navy has been creating since the beginning of the war. But by the end of the war, they don't really know what to do with them. So they give them to Miles, send them to China. So. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. The it's a um, fascinating period. Like when I, uh, when I talk to people now, um, there, there are a lot of, you know, uh, things that folks don't realize, you know, that happened during this period. But one of the things, one of the chapters that I'm always talk or asked about is this China chapter, because it's, it's nobody, nobody thinks about it. Nobody talks about it. It's a totally lost uh, pocket of, uh, of World War II history. And uh, I can see that because until I read the book, uh, I didn't know any of that, uh, which gave me a, a whole new understanding. 
You know, there's one theme or two themes actually that that I have picked up on in this book. Uh, and I'd like you to comment on one is, and you commented on it just a minute ago, is a lot of the the guys uh, that actually brought special ops into existence. We're not special ops people had no idea what special ops was and really didn't care to be in special ops. Uh, what is your feeling on that? I mean, it's, uh, I know that a lot of us now we, we like that. We like doing it. Yeah. We have a pension for it, but here these guys were, and you know, another one was Darby. I mean, here he was an administrative officer and he got tapped. Okay. Now go start the Rangers. But what they did and how they did it was phenomenal with no background in it. Uh, and, and you highlighted that in your book in several occasions. Um, yeah, uh, that was one of the, the most interesting things that I discovered when writing the book. Is, you know, we have this myth. Uh, all these special operations units have this myth that, um, uh, that there's this huge distinction between uh, unconventional uh, troops and conventional troops or conventional thinkers and unconventional thinkers. Um, and I think there's some truth to that. I mean, I think the, the reason that that myth persists is because <clears throat> any of us unconventional types, at some point in our careers, we've come in contact with a, that conventional thinker, whoever that regular Navy person is, a regular Army guy is, and they've given us a hard time. And so it reinforces that idea. But the fact of the matter is, is uh, all of these units were created by very conventional people. Um, like you, you, you mentioned uh, Darby. Darby, uh, Darby is uh, probably the most revered uh, uh, person in Army Ranger history, or right? and, and certainly one of the most revered people in the history of Army Special Operations. Uh, and, and and for good reason. He's uh, he's uh, uh, he's. He's incredible. Uh, what he does in a few short months in one creating uh, the Ranger Force and then leading it, uh, he's he's an amazing person. What's what we don't realize is that by the end of the war, Darby he turns his back on the whole Ranger concept. Uh, the whole Ranger concept. Um, he thinks that you know uh, any unit should be able to perform uh, any infantry unit should be able to perform Ranger operations. Um, but like you, you talk about Miles, uh, Kaufman, uh, some of these other uh, uh, conventional types, they have no interest in creating special commando type units. They see an opportunity uh, and they, they solve a problem. They weren't setting out uh, like entrepreneurs to uh, create uh, a unit uh, that's going to you know, ultimately kill Osama bin Laden. They were, uh, they were seeing, seeing this problem that was directly in front of them and they were doing their best to actually, to just solve it. They're getting acclimated, uh, to the environment. Uh, they start to figure out that there is more to do here, uh, than just go and, uh, sit on a riverbank all night, and wait for a, uh, a sandpan to violate cur curfew so we can shoot them up and take whatever's in the sandpan. They realize that they can kidnap people, they can uh, ransack them for information, and they can find uh, the next person up the chain of command uh, that they can go kidnap and then get more information from that person. Uh, so they do. They, they, they transform uh, from this, this coastal raiding force 
this patrol and ambush force uh, all the way to uh, this thing that a completely new concept of special operator in Vietnam. And that's the capture kill commando force. Like I said, it's a fascinating book. I want to thank you, Ben, for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been fascinating. As I said before, not to overstate it, uh, the book is fascinating. It, it uh, brings into focus uh, a lot of uh, situations as to why did things evolve the way they did and who were the principal motivators behind it. So thank you. I do appreciate thank it. Thanks very much. Great having me on. Thanks. Thanks for everything you're doing. Thank you, sir. You have been listening to Deploying High. Uh, I am your host, Chief Gene Saunders, the founder and CEO of Project Lifesaver International. And if you'd like to get the book uh, that our namesake is Deploying High, you can go to our website, Project Lifesaver International, and go to our merchandise store and obtain a copy there. I'd like to thank you and have a great one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deploying High with Chief Gene Saunders, brought to you by Project Lifesaver International. Deploying High would like to thank all of our supporters across the country and around the world. All proceeds from Deploying High go to support Project Lifesaver International online at projectlifesaver.org. If you'd like to help support the mission, please subscribe to our channel, make a donation, and don't forget to tell a friend about us. 